I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rare Extra. Ensuring diversity, equity, and inclusion in rare disease organizations requires focused programs that engage all stakeholders, according to a nine-month project just completed by RareX. The project was undertaken to provide a general overview of the rare disease landscape regarding DEI issues and offer recommendations to support RareX's efforts to ensure the long-term development of an inclusive rare disease data platform. We spoke to Tanisha Washington, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Lead for RareX, J.P. Saxtetter, Senior Director of Patient Advocacy Relations for Genentech, and Nancy O'Donnell, Director of Outreach for the Usher Syndrome Coalition. The three discuss the RareX report, their own experiences around DEI issues, and how to best address the challenges they've encountered. Tanisha, JP, Nancy, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. We're going to discuss diversity, equity, and inclusion in the world of rare disease and a recent DEI scoping report from RareX. Tanisha, perhaps we can begin there with the scoping report that you wrote. Why did RareX undertake this work? Yes, so um, this work was really just coming out of the importance of us understanding in the rare disease space how important it is for us to be diverse in everything that we do. Um, and as a part of that, um, we were really engaged with a lot of different organizations, just understanding their thoughts about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And some of that included making sure um, from the beginning that our advisory council was very inclusive so that everything that we planned was around kind of their thoughts. Um, so we were starting that project um, with an open mindset of what we were going to be doing. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk more about everything that that consisted of, but the final report also lists some things as far as us um, participating in individual interviews, focus groups, as well as a survey um, that we put out for everyone to complete. And how is the report expected to be used? So really, that's the great part, Danny. Um, the idea that really we want organizations to be able to use the report, however it's fitting for them. Um, so whether that's something that works as far as at an apartmental level, um, that's great. If it's more of an individual level um, for patient advocacy organizations, that's great for them. So really, whatever works best for um, the particular organization that plans to use it. What did the report find? Well, for the most part, um, something that I think we anticipated was the idea that first off, um, just the sheer definition of diversity and what that means. Um, so thinking from it, thinking from a perspective of an individual base as far as race, ethnicity, but even thinking geographically, um, also thinking about gender and how people identify themselves. Um, in addition, uh, thinking through disability status, um, which is also very important. Um, other things that we found was the education um, that's necessary. So oftentimes uh, people think, you know, oh, everybody just knows about rare disease or can identify them 
within their community. And that doesn't seem to be the case. A lot of people, you know, there are misconceptions about rare disease um, and what that looks like uh, for particular demographic groups um, and how to engage people. Uh, Oftentimes, people that identify with having a rare disease, they're already overburdened um, with caregiving and things of that nature. Uh, so just how do we keep them engaged in the work that we're doing um, so that we can kind of attract an inclusive group of individuals? Any surprises in your findings? Um, I would say I think that just how we look at um, data, because we did ask some questions um, specifically related to Rare X's platform that they're building and how people want to participate in that. So, you know, thinking through, like, what are the best ways to organize a website? Um, what are some resources to provide so that people understand, you know, how to complete surveys, um, how to make sure that, you know, the language is even inclusive? So things like that that I think we don't, you know, just really think about um, when we're creating just different platforms as well as just different resources, just being a lot more open-minded in our practices. As you mentioned, there were surveys. You surveyed not only patient organizations, but uh, a broad set of representatives across the rare disease ecosystem. Were there any differences in the way patient advocates view DEI issues relative to other stakeholders? Oh, yeah. So I think from a patient advocacy perspective, there was a lot of, you know, just the empathy factor, like understanding um, a rare disease and what that entails. Um, Also making sure that, you know, they have access to the care that they need and that they're you know, even um, given the opportunity uh, within their healthcare setting to have a referral to where they need to go um, rather than kind of just putting out, you know, you may have a rare disease and not necessarily following up with any necessary resources for them. Um, I think on the opposite end, you know, thinking about researchers and uh, farm companies and things of that nature, it was more so related to, you know, making the data accessible um, and when I say accessible for those particular stakeholders, it was more so related to, you know, how do we easily uh, manage that data and pull the data from the platform um, in the future as far as how, you know, they're going to be able to see those results and being able to tangibly use those results for the activities that they have um, geared towards their research in their biopharm companies. So I think, you know, what you'll see in the report is that those responses were very unique based on um, the particular stakeholder. Well, let's bring JP and Nancy in. All patient organizations and companies are different. Do you think the industry and and patient organizations are taking DEI issues seriously? And, And in particular, as you think about the realm of rare diseases, what's the case for why companies and patient advocates should be concerned about these. JP, do you want to start? Yeah, sure, I will. First, thanks so much for welcoming me on and, and really hearing from, from industry as well. And, and hopefully I can be um, somewhat of a proxy for it. So, you know, to your question about is industry taking DEI seriously? Um, I would say yes. And I, and I really do believe that. And it's been, it's been an evolution, but I, I believe it's the case. And I think you can start by looking at it in a couple of different ways. Internally, meaning what are, what are, what is industry, what is the pharmaceutical industry and companies like that doing within their ranks? And then how does that project externally? 
and the partnerships and activities that they take. And so, you know, I can speak it on behalf of, of one company, the company that I, I have the pleasure to work for, and that's Genentech. Um, and Genentech's approach to DEI really has kind of a three-pronged approach. And it starts internally with the first prong of fostering belonging. And that's really about creating a culture where great ideas thrive, where there are diverse opinions that people can bring their whole selves. And so kind of based on this foundation, um, it projects externally in focusing on uh, really two areas, advancing inclusive research and addressing health equity, and then transforming society. And that third external focused um, kind of pillar of, of our diversity, equity, inclusion approach is, is really aspirational, um, but it really shows up in, in how we partner, partner with groups like RareX, um, partner with the broader patient advocacy community, but also partner with education providers, HBCUs, partnering with other areas where um, uh, members have, have historically been, been left out. Um, and I think it's one thing to, to say all these things. It's another to, to kind of look in the mirror and see if you're actually measuring up to them. And so our company has taken an approach where we publish a report on how we're doing. We've put these things out there and then we asked and, and really saw if we're, we're doing it. And we put that out publicly um, and it's warts and all. And I'm really proud of that. It's easy to put a glossy, um, we did great um, report out there. And we have made some great progress, but we've also showed that we've, we've got some areas to grow. Um, and, and we're putting that out there as well and hopefully encouraging others to do something similarly. And so uh, to, to bring it back to the, the last part of your question of, of how does that really focus on, on the rare community? Our overall vision is to deliver three to five times more patient benefit at half the cost to society. So where do we find three to five times more patient benefit? It's looking for scientific innovation in areas of the most unmet need. And we know that is so often within the rare community. Our company is undertaking dozens, um, perhaps close to 50 clinical studies focusing in the rare community on rare diseases and disorders and diagnostics. That's all about finding that benefit. But you can't have benefit and have a system that is unsustainable for it. And that's really thinking about the overall cost to society. And so when we think about the cost to society, we can't have a system of haves and have nots, access and no access. It's really about reducing the overall burden on society as it relates to the rare community by thinking about things like access, care, and continuity of care to access and to treatments. So it's, it's really a broad approach, but, but the rare community and all the things that we're learning from Tanisha and RareX's research really fit in nicely with this broad approach. Nancy, how about from a patient perspective? Yeah, this is Nancy O'Donnell speaking. So um, glad that you're zooming in on the uh, very local level. Um, just thinking about uh, the community that we serve and that we work with uh, happens to be individuals who are deaf and have a progressive vision loss. Uh, so when you think about access and uh, accessibility in general, you're dealing with many, many forms of communication. Uh, you want to make sure that your websites are accessible so that health literacy and an understanding of where each person's uh, disease progression is, uh, is at. 
You want to make sure that any forms for surveys are accessible. You want to make sure that um, if people use sign language or tactile sign language or Braille or electronic forms, uh, that they are all accessible. So we love to partner with other organizations that are providing services to the Usher Syndrome community specifically, but we find that if information is accessible to our community, it's pretty well going to be accessible to other rare disease communities as well. And because we work with the deaf community who are culturally deaf, and that's with a capital D, and who use American Sign Language as their primary method of communication, then English would be a second language for many in this community. And that goes along with making sure that, as Tanisha mentioned, that we make sure that our language in surveys or even reports is accessible. Uh, it falls between maybe a sixth and eighth grade reading level. And that not only benefits individuals who are deaf, but if we have um, individuals from other language bases, Spanish, French, whatever, um, that it makes it accessible to all. So we really work with it on a one-to-one -one and a, a local community level. All three of you engaged with various stakeholders in, in the rare disease community. I'm wondering, what's your sense of how seriously people are taking DEI issues and what's driving that, whether it's, it's a, a cultural issue or a science issue? I think that's a great question. Um, and I say that because I think that that um, really determines, it's really based on the organization. Um, and I feel like more and more what I'm seeing out in the scope of the work that I do is that more and more organizations are genuinely um, worried about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, and those, the levels at where they're trying to attack um, each of those areas depends on their focus. So I've seen a lot of thinking about diversity in the sense of making sure that um, the development of an organization from the board of directors um, to any people that volunteer with the organization, even contractors, um, that they're thinking about diversity and from that um, side of diversity. And then in addition to that, also thinking about other organizations that are really kind of attacking um, this thinking through kind of the inclusion aspect and really trying to develop novel ideas and approaches to actually communicating um, with people, whether that's in different languages, um, as well as um, thinking about Nancy's organization and who she works with, identifying ways to communicate that may not necessarily be what we're accustomed to um, thinking through being very strategic about even if it's sign language um, and other ways of communicating that they are really kind of pushing that to the top of their priority list. Nancy, what's your experience? I think that organizations in general want to be more inclusive, but I don't know if they know how. Uh, and you really have to have experience with your consumer base, with your community in order to understand what their needs are and in order to respond to their needs. Basically, let the community tell us what they need. And that's what we have done for years um, as technology has changed. My goodness, it's made such a difference in the lives of people who are deaf and blind, deaf blind, people with disabilities, uh, internet accessibility, uh, various adaptive equipment, et cetera. But for the mainstream community or um, uh, um, for an organization or a company or 
corporation that does not interact very often or doesn't have the opportunity to interact, they might not know where to start. And that's where we kind of shine. We, um, as, as a service provider, as a consumer-based organization, we are the bridge between those communities. And I think you really have to go back to the community itself and always touch base there because things are constantly changing. JP, do, do you find when you engage with others in the rare disease world that there is this focus? Is this something Genentech is bringing to patient organizations or, or its partners? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the, the really encouraging um, signs um, that we've seen over the last, I'd say, um, five or six years is, is the focus, especially on the science of recognizing the shortfalls and the opportunities to be more inclusive. And when I think about the science, it's really two areas. One, it's who is doing the research. So bringing in unique, diverse researchers that have a different perspective on how to conduct research. And then the second piece on the science side of of being more um, diverse and inclusive is who is being uh, who are the subjects of the research? And I think the, the first of bringing in diverse researchers has made such a tremendous benefit in how we think about going out and engaging um, diverse and, and more representative communities for the science. We know right now that roughly 90% of genetic material that is being used in basic and translational research is of European descent. That is a symptom of when this information was captured that many of the folks doing the research were of European descent. So kind of changing that paradigm now while those who are doing research are more diverse will ultimately lead to better genetic material and therefore better research that is more diverse. So it's really heartening. There's a lot that's happening, plenty more to be done, um, but, but the steps and it feels like the wheels of this are, are really in motion. You mentioned genetic material. RareX is is focused on data gathering and data sharing from a, a data point of view, particularly with regards to rare diseases that tend to be genetic and, and heterogeneous. Why is it important to think about DEI issues with regards to things like natural history studies or patient recruitment for clinical trials? A, a recent initiative that we have started is to develop a volunteer base worldwide. Uh, In our rare disease community, it's estimated that there are approximately 400,000 people worldwide living with Usher syndrome. And uh, we've recently started to reach out and train volunteers in countries in which we've really never had an impact or a contact person. For example, in Nepal, uh, I'm training a team of volunteers there about Usher syndrome. And these are individuals who themselves have Usher syndrome. They use a different sign language system. Their uh, sign language is interpreted into spoken Nepalese and then into English. Uh, We would love to build our community there and find out, are there other um, genes that could be identified that are just unique to Nepal? We just created a, a team in India as well. And we know large population in India that's basically been untapped, not organized, and we're excited to see if there are 
unique genes there. And our other country is, is Greece that we're starting to work with. So prior to the onset of you know, uh, platforms um, that are uh, virtual, we would not have been able to do this type of work. And it's very exciting to think that uh, not only on the research side, but on the education side and on the recruitment for clinical trials, all of these are elevated to a whole new level now. And JP, on the drug developer side, are you finding regulators are scrutinizing data for diverse populations? Is that something that you yourself, do, you know, do drug developers do on their own as they look for finding perhaps subpopulations where a drug may have efficacy? But what what's the pressure internally to be inclusive with regards to the data you gather and, and the clinical trials you conduct? Yeah, I, I think one of the unique things about the rare community, as we all know, is just in that name. It's in the rarity of it. And so as much breadth as we can find across these rare communities gives us more robust data and therefore uh, more information to potential participants in clinical research. And so, um, given the heterogeneity of, of, of rare diseases, expanding the pool. And Nancy brings up a great point and one that we've been, we've been trying to, to work with as well is, is to reach out to those areas where we know there are communities that are, are impacted by these conditions that have been either disenfranchised or, or inaccessible to, to certain research. And so by broadening that funnel, we're able to welcome more folks in who may be eligible to participate in research and therefore have a broader understanding of, of, the, of the disease itself. I'll take one example um, that we worked on a number of years ago here at Genentech and it's for a condition called spinal muscular atrophy. Um, in our study, we were able to expand that to areas that had previously not been able to participate in clinical research. Areas like China, areas like, um, like Turkey or Eastern Europe or the Middle East, areas that had historically been not included um, in much of this research. And in doing so, we were able to learn a tremendous amount, um, but also when it became a medicine, to be able to go back to those same communities and go to their regulatory authorities and say, you know, this wasn't something that was done over here in the US or in the EU. This was something that was done in your country with your communities. Therefore, access to this um, to this medicine was much more favorably viewed. So I think there's a really reciprocal benefit to expanding um, outreach and engagement that can ultimately lead to better research and ideally better outcomes uh, for those communities. As you know, Nancy, you spoke about language challenges, but I'm wondering more broadly, as, as you think about efforts your organizations have been, been engaged with, where have the challenges been in, as you've sought to address DEI concerns? Uh, well, I would say language is probably, or access to language and information is probably our, our number one challenge. And also transportation in our particular community, because it's combined vision and hearing loss, individuals may be interested or willing to travel, but may need someone to travel with them if they have a recent and severe loss of vision. Um, and in terms of communication, as someone loses their vision, they go from visual sign language to tactile sign language and also uh, touch cues on their bodies. So 
you're looking for a very specific group of people who can facilitate communication there. Um, I, I would also say that in terms of what I've learned in working now with the international community, language that we use here, uh, our vocabulary, especially when I'm doing some of the training, doesn't translate into another, another culture, into another language, or, or into the consciousness, if you will. Um, and when we talk about, for example, uh, in working with our group in India, they say, why do I even want to bring my child to get genetic testing to see if they have Usher syndrome? If you can't cure it, what's the point? So we're learning about the, the various cultures and values of communities around the world that still fall under the umbrella of Usher syndrome. And of course, honoring that, um, providing information and leaving that information there for each person to make their own decision as to what works for them. JP? Yeah, I, I think the, the biggest challenge is, is kind of reconciling the enormity of the, of the problem versus what a company like ours can affect, albeit a, a big and multinational company. Sometimes the problem feels so daunting um, and our piece of it so small that, that kind of reconciling those two things can be a challenge. And kind of in response to that, it has been all about partnership about really leaning in to partners like RareX, to others in the community, but also you know, policy and advocacy organizations that are focused on, on issues on the Hill or issues in the States, um, working with academic and research partners, kind of instead of trying to devour that elephant, just, just one bite at a time, um, but in partnership with others has really helped um, kind of ameliorate that, that challenge of looking at this huge systemic issue and being paralyzed by the complexity and enormity of the challenge. Tanisha, as, as you conducted your interviews and surveys, did you find any pattern of challenges stakeholders faced in, in their efforts to address DEI issues? Yes, and I think um, I'm gonna go back to something Nancy said, because I think this is so important. One of the things that we found out was that, yes, everybody wants to, um, focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion, but really many people don't know how. Um, so, and that was a really why we created this report, the idea that to show them the how, so that no matter where you are on that spectrum, you know, maybe you're almost at the end, you feel like you're almost there, you're doing great work. What else can you do? Um, and then those that haven't necessarily started, but don't really know where to begin. Um, and what can you pull from the report for your particular organization that would be helpful? Um, and maybe start small and then kind of start out some type of strategic plan of how you want to focus on um, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And then in addition to that, I would have to go back again to Nancy and say language. Um, language is such a barrier in the sense of you know, again, how do people look at language? How do we identify um, a language that works best for us? And again, those cultural aspects. So what does that look like um, in different settings? And for this particular project, we did have this national approach, um, but really more so in the future, thinking about the international scope. Um, RareX has already done some international scoping work, but continuing to engage our international partners as well. 
I remember uh, attending a, a recent DEI event. And one of the things that what I found interesting was when people in communities that necessarily weren't participating in clinical trials or other types of, of research, one thing that became apparent is it had a lot to do with people just asking. And, and I'm wondering, you know, how much of getting an effort like this started just has to do with organizations being very conscious about reaching out to places they're, they're not and, and making that ask. I think that's a very important point, um, Danny. And I think, you know, oftentimes that's kind of a lot of organizations, you know, in their sense of how the how, um, you know, they were very, I think it's being transparent about what's missing. Um, and in the sense of outreach, you know, what does that look like? And, I, and JP mentioned this earlier, uh, a lot of our work, you know, even previous efforts have really focused on um, the idea from that Caucasian white perspective, because that's kind of predominantly who's been in the field. And so a lot of organizations were really like, how do we do this? And JP hit it on the head, the idea of thinking about outreach differently, thinking about engaging communities authentically. Um, and oftentimes that may mean that you're going to have to be transparent about being honest about the history behind a lot of the work that we do and how it has been disenfranchised um, communities, but also thinking through just being innovative in your efforts, um, you know, reaching out to HBCUs, you know, um, trying our best to continue to kind of navigate rare disease and creating, um, I would say, people that are interested in rare disease research that doesn't look like what, you know, we've, we're used to seeing in um, this particular field. So I think that's kind of where we've been working and thinking through how to actively engage communities. Um, and I think it, once we kind of learn that process and what that looks like, um, people are more willing to actually do the work and are actually willing to help. It's just finding the best way to approach them. I'm wondering if, if any of you can, can offer creative solutions you've either found for yourselves or seen others apply that you think might be worth considering. If I could maybe kind of piggyback on, on Tanisha and, and perhaps offer one, I think the question is, especially as it pertains to research, is, is not just how, but where. I think what is so often happens are sites and locations where research is taking place. Um, they're, they're largely academic medical institutions, and it's that way for a lot of different reasons. But that's also self-selecting in the types um, of patients and individuals who are able to participate in that research. And it leaves a lot of folks behind, folks who are not seen or don't have access um, to those sites. Genentech has started an initiative, it's called the Advancing Inclusive Research Site Alliance. And it's partnered with quite a few number, uh, quite a number of, of you know, reputable research organizations across the country here in the US um, sites that I just mentioned that, that do those types of research, but they're partnering with them to have outreach to other community sites in their proximity to bring them on board to be part of the research and to have their constituents, constituents who might not otherwise be given access to research, the ability to participate. 
And so it opens the door uh, for more folks to participate. And that's part of it, but there's more that goes into it. These are communities that have less traditional experience of participating in clinical research and therefore need more resources. So in addition to the outreach and engagement of these sites, these community-based sites, it's putting together an ecosystem to support potential research participants. So that includes things like logistics support, things like case management, things like differentiated education about clinical trials and what to expect in appropriate language. Back to what you were mentioning, Nancy, that is something I'm definitely gonna take away from this conversation is the importance of language, but really putting that in a way that's the most applicable. So through this alliance, we're hopeful to, to really expand into many rare disease areas and make that accessible to communities to participate in research who might not otherwise have had the ability to do so. This is really helpful to listen to everyone else uh, talking about um, ways that we can better serve our, our communities. I have three things that I've written down. The first one is trust. And in working with the deafblind community for many years and with any community that's been marginalized or overlooked, I think trust is the first thing that we need to make sure that we, we build and create. In fact, we went so far as to call our international registry the US Trust because not only is it secure and we don't share information, but we want the community to know that when you, when you trust us with your information, with the knowledge that you have Usher syndrome, we are not going to go and, and share that without your permission. The second thing is time. It takes time to make information accessible. Uh, it may slow down the pace of a conversation. Uh, a podcast such as this, for example, it would take time to to change this into a text document so that this is fully accessible to, for example, our community who, who they don't hear so they won't have access to this. So it takes time to make sure that all communities are included. And then translation has a couple of meanings. Number one, for me, I didn't come into this with a background in science. So translating those big words and those huge concepts to the level that a layperson can understand so that when they sign up for either a natural history study or some type of clinical trial, they truly know when they're signing the, the consent forms, what they're getting themselves into and how they can get themselves out of it uh, and understanding what the process will be, what the commitment will be, et cetera. So understanding the science that they are interacting with and then translation of the language, as we mentioned, so that it's uh, in a sixth to eighth grade reading level that is accessible to all. And then making that information available through a text transcript and making sure that captions are available on any information that goes out, making sure that PDFs or Word documents are accessible. Um, that all builds trust in the community that we really are listening to individuals and that enhances the relationship. It makes people feel heard. It, it, it is making people feel heard and, and it's also inclusive and, and then people can make informed decisions. Well, Nancy, how does a report like the RareX scoping report help you and what you're trying to do? Well, first of all, it lets the community know that we are not just an isolated community looking at our own segment of, of the disability world, if you will that we are working together and collaboratively to get the big picture. 
and that information that comes in through the report can go out. I would say that for 105 pages of a report, um, that's a lot to read. So hopefully there's an executive summary or we can make that information accessible to individuals and to come up with a version that isn't going to cause mental exhaustion, visual exhaustion, tactile exhaustion from reading it in braille. But I think there are many levels that are comforting to a community to know that they are not alone, that the whole rare disease community is working together to improve the quality of life for all. And JP, how are you using the report? Yeah, I think in, in two ways. So first, it's, it's so admirable how Tanisha and, and Charlene Nicole have really included um, this focus on DEI um, at the inception. That is not the case for um, most other ways uh, that data are collected, be they registries or natural history studies. So the, the first thing that has really spurred for us is to think about those existing partnerships that we have, um, many of which are with patient organizations, and ask and really probe on how we might think about gathering more inclusive participants in those and, and also more, uh, more inclusive data. So it's, it's really asked, it's given us pause to think about how we might change our existing um, partnerships and in, in how, we, how we gather data. And then I think the second thing is, is it's kind of spurred us internally um, within our organization to think about how we're capturing data. Any big organization like ours um, is collecting appropriately and compliantly information from, from members of communities with which we work. We've kind of asked ourselves, you know, we're collecting this normal data set, but, but why aren't we appropriately, of course, and with consent always, why aren't we collecting veteran status? Why aren't we collecting SOGI data? Um, Nancy, you have got my head spinning about like how we think about um, individuals that, that need a visual or tactile support. It's really forced us to think about how when we go about collecting, collecting data, um, are we thinking about it as inclusively as the RareX team has been? So I think both in our partnerships and you know, kind of again, looking in the mirror, it's really forced us to to, to take some pause and, and really think about how we can do things better. Tanisha, what's next steps for RareX? What's it planning to do now that it's completed the scoping study? Yeah, so, so, so many things. Um, and I think that's the exciting part. So um, I would say for the most part, for the first part, transparency. Um, and transparency from an organizational standpoint. So making sure that, you know, we even think through rare access policies and how we are actively um, working on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And one of the ways that we plan on doing that is to also provide um, potentially yearly updates on where we are in regards to the actual report. So, you know, we're not just putting out this report and then not also doing the exact same things that we recommended. Um, and then in addition to that, something Nancy mentioned, which is creating an executive summary of the report. Um, that's something that's definitely necessary given the length of the report. Um, one of the things that was very hard for me, um, it was kind of this like, hey, Tanisha, yes, it needs to be shortened. But at the same time, um, making sure that all of the access that we, the data and everything that we gathered was there. Um, for everybody to see, and then for us to kind of adapt that um, to a smaller version for those individuals that kind of just want to, hey, you know, what are the recommendations? How do I um, implement them into my organization? 
Um, and then really adapting our platform. So, I mean, one of the main goals of this was to make sure that the Rear X uh, platform was going to be developed in a very um, inclusive way. Um, and a lot of the questions, a lot of individuals mentioned just different sheer recommendations of what they would like to see on that end. Um, so we are making sure as a part of that, that we're actually gathering demographic data. Um, one of the things that I found out was that a lot of organizations didn't even realize that they needed to collect this type of data um, and making sure that in that collection of data that we can see, you know, who are we actually engaging um, with this particular platform? Um, another way that we're, uh, what uh, activities that we're doing is really thinking about identifying rare diseases that predominantly impact minorities um, and using our platform to pilot with those um, different organizations. Um, and what do I, and what I mean by that is making sure that they see the platform and that they can provide us very strategic um, recommendations on what we can do to continue to try to improve our efforts of working with um, inclusive organizations. And then in addition to that, um, really taking those recommendations and utilizing them. And one of the ways that we're doing that actively is thinking through a program that we're working on um, that involves uh, really community liaisons um, and training liaisons to be able to serve um, as the connectors between, you know, like academia and all of these different rare disease stakeholders and then the actual people in communities. I mean, it goes back to that language barrier. Um, as a researcher myself, you know, I know how I can speak in, you know, certain terms that may not necessarily translate to the community. Um, so really thinking through how do we engage community liaisons to serve kind of as that intermediary um, to fill into that trust. Um, level and then also to kind of help us with really breaking down our language to a level that's understandable um, that allows people to access all of the resources um, that they need to. And lastly, I would say engagement, engagement, engagement. Um, and by that, I mean authentic engagement. So um, oftentimes I say this a lot, you know, thinking about even from a research perspective, you know, we do all of the work that we do because of people, not for numbers, um, not for data. You know, that's how I think we should think about the work that we do. And I think that if we put people at the center of everything that we do, um, you know, one of that, the ways of kind of thinking through that is really engaging them authentically. Um, and really putting what their interests are at the foremost of the organization um, and then kind of modifying the other areas in the way that is conducive to what they're asking us. Um, but really to kind of formulate those relationships and think about them genuinely as people and not necessarily what we can get out of them, um, but building those relationships authentically. Tanisha Washington, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Lead for RareX, J.P. Sexteter. Senior Director of Patient Advocacy Relations for Genentech, and Nancy O'Donnell, Director of Outreach for the Usser Syndrome Coalition. Tanisha, JP, Nancy, thank you all for your time today. Thank you. Thank Dan. you so much, Danny. Thank you, Danny. Thanks for listening. RareX is a collaborative platform for global data sharing and analysis to accelerate treatments for rare disease. RareX is adapting proven technologies and partnering with leading experts to create a federated data analysis platform specifically designed by rare community leaders and scaled to support the diverse and expanding needs of rare disease research, development, and care. To learn more about RareX, go to rare-x.org.
This podcast is produced for Rarex by the Levine Media Group. Music is courtesy of the Jonah Levine Collective.